Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Illuminating the Role of Primary Care Physicians in Diabetic Eye Care, a Practical Guide to Patient Referral and Management Strategies. To access the full program and supporting materials, visit www.answersincme.com forward slash YUM860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Hello, I'm Dr. Lloyd Clark, Assistant Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine and the Palmetto Retina Center in West Columbia, South Carolina. I'm pleased to be with you today for an important talk on the role of primary care physicians in diabetic eye care. Diabetic retinopathy is now the leading cause of severe vision loss in adults in the United States, surpassing age-related macular degeneration. Approximately a third of these patients have vision-threatening diabetic retinopathy, which can be broken down into increasing diabetic retinopathy with proliferative or neovascular disease and diabetic macular edema. Overall, the pathophysiology of both diabetic retinopathy and DME are similar. We see a hypoperfusion and ischemia of the retina, which leads to breakdown of the blood retinal barrier and elevation of important ischemic growth factors, including vascular endothelial growth factor. These processes ultimately lead to both neovascularization of the retina in proliferative disease and leakage of blood vessels in the retina, leading to diabetic macular edema. A simple way to think about diabetic retinopathy classification is a scale between zero and four. Zero meaning the patient has diabetes but no retinopathy, up to four, which is high risk severe diabetic retinopathy or proliferative diabetic retinopathy. The longer a patient has diabetes, the more likely they are to have severe disease. In addition to this four category classification, we also determine if the patient has swelling in the retina or diabetic macular edema, and we classify that with either center-involved or non-center-involved. Center-involved DME is the most common cause of vision loss in patients with diabetes. This needs to be identified and addressed in a prompt fashion. Approximately 10% of patients have severe non-proliferative disease, but approximately half will move on to high-risk diabetic retinopathy within a year. Once patients develop proliferative disease, they have about a one-third chance of severe vision loss within two years. So it's important to identify these patients with severe disease at the appropriate time and offer appropriate treatment and referral. We'll move on to the next session where we'll discuss modifiable risk factors for diabetic retinopathy and DME that you can help manage in patients with diabetes, as well as best practices for referral to specialists for evaluation of this disease process. In session two, we'll take a closer look at the primary care physician's role in the management of diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. Here are the recommendations from the American Diabetes Association. These mirror the recommendations from the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Obviously, glycemic control is critically important for patients, and we strongly encourage patients to know their hemoglobin A1C, blood pressure, and serum lipids. Patients need appropriate screening, which means within five years of diagnosis of type 1 diabetes or at the time of diagnosis for type 2 diabetes, if retinopathy is present, then the ophthalmic specialist will dictate the appropriate screening intervals. In terms of treatment, the key here is to get patients to the appropriate treating physician who can provide modern contemporary care based on the appropriate level of treatment. In some communities, that's the general ophthalmologist. In many communities, that would be a retina specialist who's particularly in touch with the current treatments for diabetic eye disease. 
There's also a number of evidence-based tips for minimizing diabetic retinopathy. You as the primary care doctor are familiar with many of these. Certainly number one is don't get diabetes or manage prediabetes at an appropriate level in terms of lifestyle changes, as well as a number of dietary changes. It's important to stress the importance of getting the hemoglobin A1C down as low as possible. There are a number of other dietary modifications which have been shown in small studies to limit the progression of diabetic retinopathy we see here at the bottom of the slide. The clinical presentation of patients with diabetic retinopathy typically is no symptoms. Most patients with significant treatment threshold diabetic retinopathy have no vision impairment, and this is the point at which we want to see these patients to institute therapy. Once patients develop blurred vision, floaters, and vision loss, oftentimes we're down the road pretty far in terms of their treatment. So the key here is appropriate referral at an early stage so that we can catch patients before they've lost vision. We as eye care professionals rely on you as primary care docs to get these patients to us in a timely fashion. So timely and appropriate screening for yearly exams for any patient with diabetes are critical. We really rely on these referrals on a communication feedback loop between you and us. Important reports for quality measures for reimbursement for government funding programs. In the next session, we'll focus on the efficacy of approved vascular endothelial growth factor agents for diabetic retinopathy and DME, including their potential role in the regression of retinopathy. In session three, we're going to talk specifically about evidence for antivascular endothelial growth factor therapy. One thing that's occurred over the last few years is the slow progression away from laser treatment. Anti-VEGF therapy really is the primary choice for patients with diabetic macular edema and is an important adjunct for laser treatment in proliferative diabetic retinopathy to maximize outcomes. We still use laser in isolated cases of diabetic macular edema, but in general, lasers reserve for patients with aggressive proliferative diabetic retinopathy. All other cases, really anti-VEGF therapy is the primary treatment option. In terms of the treatment of diabetic macular edema with anti-VEGF agents, an important clinical trial funded by the National Institutes of Health looked at the three major anti-VEGF agents and demonstrated in all comers that they're all effective and safe treatments for diabetic macular edema. However, in patients with more severe vision loss, worse than 2050, aflibercept appeared to be statistically significant to the two other agents in terms of improving diabetic macular edema and visual acuity outcomes. So aflibercept has become a preferred choice for patients with diabetic eye disease, particularly in those with more severe vision loss from DME. We learned from early DME clinical trials that regression of diabetic retinopathy is possible with anti-VEGF therapy. In terms of the ranibizumab clinical trials in patients that were found to have severe non-proliferative disease, approximately 80% of these eyes saw a significant reduction in their retinopathy. This prompted other clinical trials to be performed, which showed similar results of regression of diabetic retinopathy. Here with a flibercept in the panorama study, again, an 80% rate of two-step reduction in diabetic retinopathy and an 80% risk reduction in vision-threatening complications, including proliferative diabetic retinopathy and center-involved diabetic macular edema. 
These findings were confirmed by Protocol W. Again, a robust and durable reduction in diabetic retinopathy in patients treated with anti-VEGF therapy. So we now have a second indication for anti-VEGF therapy, meaning reduction of diabetic retinopathy severity, in addition to the primary indication for anti-VEGF therapy, which was vision loss from diabetic macular edema. These are powerful agents and ones that we have in our armamentarium to improve clinical outcomes in patients with diabetic eye disease. In the next session, let's discuss the safety profiles of our anti-VEGF agents for diabetic macular edema and diabetic retinopathy and key proactive adverse event management strategies. This session will report on the safety profiles of available anti-VEGF agents for diabetic eye disease and key proactive adverse event strategies. The most common adverse events associated with intravitreal injections are those associated with the injection procedure itself, including conjunctival hemorrhage, eye pain, vitreous floaters. Across multiple disease indications and multiple agents, this is borne out to be true in clinical trials. There does not appear to be, in at least our more common drugs utilized, any type of class effect causing adverse events. However, there are some rare but more serious adverse events that occur in patients, again, associated with the intravitreal injection procedure, including endophthalmitis and retinal detachment. There is a syndrome of severe uveitis, which has recently been identified in certain anti-VEGF agents, specifically brolicizumab. This is a newer agent that has just become FDA approved. But unfortunately, from the randomized clinical trials, as well as community experience, the risk of inflammation and severe inflammation is orders of magnitude higher than the main intravitreal agents that we've talked about earlier tonight. In the case of severe intraocular inflammation, the rates appear to be as high high as 4 to 5% with brolicizumab compared to less than 1% with a fliberceptin ranibizumab. So these older agents appear to be mainline treatments due to their safety profile. In terms of adverse event management, the two most important are endophthalmitis and intraocular inflammation. In terms of endophthalmitis, we prep all eyes with a topical povidone iodine solution to reduce the risk of introducing bacteria into the eye. And in occasional cases, we'll use antibiotic drops. But in general, povidone iodine prep is effective at greatly reducing the risk of endophthalmitis. In patients with intraocular inflammation, we see these patients frequently and we are quick to treat patients with topical steroids if they have mild inflammation. We have a low threshold for treatment of presumed endophthalmitis if the inflammation is more severe. Finally, we have a number of symptoms that we discuss with patients, including a red eye, pain, vision loss, and tearing. These are the main symptoms of a complication from an intravitreal injection and also the symptoms of retinal detachment. So we key on this list of symptoms with patients and ask them to call us immediately if they notice any of these. We see these patients on a frequent basis because the key to treating the complications of intravitreal injections is prompt diagnosis. So in summary, we're very comfortable with the risk profile of anti-VEGF treatment with intravitreal injections. In the next session, we'll discuss the role of primary care physicians in supporting patient care in patients with diabetic eye disease. 
In our last session, we'll bring into focus the role of primary care physicians in diabetic eye care. Unfortunately, less than half of patients with diabetes get regular eye exams. It's estimated somewhere between 35 and 50% of patients get appropriate examinations at routine intervals. The number one cause in an important study of these patients that did not get care was that they did not understand that they needed an eye exam. And so there's clearly a gap here between the information that we understand as clinicians and the recommendations patients are getting. Clearly, there are access issues associated with cost, providers as well, but we have the singular opportunity to educate our patients about the need for diabetic eye exams on a yearly basis, regardless of the presence of retinopathy. Here's the recommendations for diabetic retinal screening. Patients with type 1 diabetes need to be seen approximately five years after diagnosis because they typically don't have hidden diabetes. So it's unlikely that they're going to have retinopathy during the first five years. In contrast, patients with type 2 diabetes need an exam at diagnosis because oftentimes these patients have had hidden diabetes for some time. There are specific recommendations for patients with pregnancy-induced diabetes. In general, these patients need to be seen each trimester to ensure no rapid progression of diabetic retinopathy. Once these initial evaluations are performed, then there's a specific schedule for evaluations by the eye care professional that we see here on the slide. 90% of your patients will receive yearly exams because they don't have diabetic retinopathy, but for the ones where we identify significant changes and vision-threatening complications, they'll typically be seen much more frequently. Ways to get patients into the office for exam? Well, one good way is to increase awareness between both healthcare professionals and patients of the importance of annual eye exams. And there's a number of targeted interventions that can be employed. Some of these may work better in certain situations than others, but these creative ways to get patients back to you and into the eye care professional's office are critical. So in summary, we as retina specialists and eye care professionals in general rely heavily on you and the primary care arena for referrals for patients for diabetic surveillance eye exams. This is key because our treatments are very effective and more than 90% of the patients with vision loss, that can be prevented with timely and appropriate treatment. Thank you for listening. Please visit www.answersincme.com forward slash YUM860 to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.